Just a quick trigger warning before we jump into this episode. This episode does discuss mental illness and drug use and may be triggering for some listeners. Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about, and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship, and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th, so grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you, and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. On January 22, 2008, news broke. Homegrown Australian actor turned Hollywood megastar Heath Ledger had been found dead in his apartment. He was just 28 years old. Welcome to Scandal from the Shameless Podcast, the biggest celebrity stories revisited. Mish, we're back for part two and this is going to be maybe the more emotional, probably harder episode of this two-part series. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit sad already because this is such a heartbreaking story in so many ways, but I think listeners who stick with us right to the end will also learn that it's a very life-affirming story as well. And for all of the shades of grey and darkness that come with Heath Ledger's death, there are also shades of light and we can't wait to share those as well. Yeah, exactly. So in this episode, we're going to kind of continue telling the story of Heath's career and the great loves of his life as well, which I'm so looking forward to delving into. But also what I think is really important in kind of dissecting the coverage of his death, Mish, Mm. because I think there was a huge amount of irresponsible reporting, a huge amount of irresponsible rumours that went on when and after he died. So we kind of want to debunk a bit of that too. Yeah, I think the media, particularly the tabloid media, did a lot of harm in the way that they covered Heath Ledger's death, not just to Heath's family, but to anyone who has experienced drug use or drug abuse in varying ways. We really want to try and correct the record and we want to try, as always, to be compassionate to the man at the heart of this story. Yeah, and as we mentioned, last week, Shameless Media has made a donation to Beyond Blue, a charity that is committed to supporting Australians to achieve their best possible mental health. If you get to the end of the episode and this has moved you and you do have the means, we would also encourage you to donate there as well. But Mish, we've got to rewind. We've got to go back to 2004 because we're going all the way back to Brokeback Mountain. All right, Zara, this is where we left off episode one. It is 2004. Heath and his girlfriend of two years, Naomi Watts, have broken up. 
by this stage in his career, he's got some pretty big movies, 10 Things I Hate About You, The Patriot and A Knight's Tale under his belt. None of those, though, will even scratch the surface of another movie that was about to be added to his resume. Yeah, exactly. And I think where we left off last episode as well was this point that Heath was at where he was kind of doing some really gritty indie movies, but also he wasn't kind of getting these really commercial roles or often wasn't going for these really commercial roles because he wasn't interested as much in the publicity churn that comes with Hollywood. But then Brokeback Mountain kind of came onto the scene. So for those who haven't seen Brokeback Mountain, watch it. What are you doing? (laughs) I rewatched it this week as preparation for this. And let me tell you, what a fucking movie. It is it's so incredible. good. Yeah. So it is about a modern cowboy called Jack and a ranch hand called Ennis. It's set in the 60s. And despite both marrying women, the two men fall in love with each other and try to keep their affair secret over the course of 20 years. It is oh. an incredibly moving film. Now, despite it being a pretty significant project, Mish, and a project that was led by a really respected director, the two lead roles were a little bit taboo. And Rolling Stone explained that there had been plenty of interest in the film pre-production, but the question was, who would be, and this is a quote from Rolling Stone, who would be man enough to play gay? Yeah, the film's director, Ang Lee, and the co-writer, Larry McMurdy, suspected that a lot of the actors that they were talking to were a bit uncomfortable or a bit afraid about what would happen to their career if they, as heterosexual actors, were seen kissing or engaging in sexual foreplay with another man on screen. One quote from that piece was, they called it suicide for a straight actor to play a gay person. We just thought that was ridiculous. Now, it might seem unusual now in 2021 to think of that, that playing a gay character could ruin someone's career. But I think something I've learned, particularly in this Heath Ledger series, is just how far we have come with gay rights and I guess the awareness of LGBTIQ plus stories over the last 15 years. Yeah, exactly. And this film made history because it was one of the first big, very mainstream movies, very commercial movies that did centre on a gay love story, Mm. which is funny because it was less than 20 years ago. It was actually the screenwriter, Diana Asana, who said her daughter was actually the one to suggest that Heath could play the part of Ennis back in 2003. But they actually had someone else for the part. So when that actor pulled out, Diana called Heath's agent and sent him the script and apparently Heath read it on the way to Australia for Christmas and said it was the most beautiful script he'd ever read. Yeah, and he was made for this role as well. So the movie and the production team behind the movie had found their leading men. Not only did they have Heath Ledger, They also had Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, I know that's a massive name now, but I feel like this movie was pretty seminal in making both Jake and Heath household names. There is a conversation that would be had about this film in 2021, maybe about casting gay actors for these roles. But I think for its time, it was groundbreaking for so many reasons. Yeah, exactly. If it was 2021, we'd be having very different conversations about the kinds of actors that should be given the opportunity to play these roles. But for now, as we said, it was the early 2000s. Michelle Williams also joined the cast. She played Ennis's wife, which was Heath Ledger's wife in the film. And Anne Hathaway played Jake Gyllenhaal 
Gyllenhaal's Hall's wife and they shot the film over four months in the Canadian country town of Calgary. Yeah, and Heath Ledger, to his credit, said he wasn't scared at all by the challenge of playing a gay man on screen. He was aware of how significant his role was and he was actually quite terrified that he wouldn't do it justice. This is a quote that he gave to Rolling Stone. My biggest anxiety wasn't having to kiss Jake. It was a perfect script and Ang Lee was the perfect director. So the anxiety for me was I didn't want to be the one to fuck it up. Yeah, and he didn't. Even the author of the original short story, which is a fun fact in and of itself, that Brokeback Mountain was actually first published as a short story in The New Yorker Mm. in 1997 and then made into a film. But even the author of that short story said that she was really impressed with Heath's performance. She said that Heath understood the character better than I did. It scared me how much he got inside Ennis. Yeah, she wasn't the only one who felt that way. Even Rolling Stone described it as, and I quote, Ledger's star making role. This was also, Zara, the place, the time when he met the woman who would go on to become, you could argue, the love of his life. Yeah, exactly. And and Heath has said when he and Michelle Williams, who did, spoiler, become one of the great <laughs> loves of his life, first watched the film back, they actually didn't know whether it was very good or not. He said, I understood that it flowed, it was presented well, but whether it was good, whether it was bad, we walked out not knowing what we just watched. What they had just watched would go on to become a huge cultural moment. It was something that was a very hot topic in a national conversation and also something that Heath was nominated for his very first Oscar for. Yeah, exactly. And I think despite that huge success that Heath experienced because of this film, he did want to continue his, I guess, habit of rejecting the expectations and demands of Hollywood and always did what he thought was right. Mm. So just last year, we learned from an interview with Jake Gyllenhaal that Heath was supposed to deliver the opening monologue at the 2007 Oscars, which is a big job. But not only did he not go through with it, he actually didn't attend the ceremony. And the reason for that was because the organisers had actually written a homophobic joke into the script. And Jake said he had been willing to go along with it. But Heath had apparently said, it's not a joke to me. I don't want to make any jokes about it. I love Heath Ledger so much. This was another part of that quote that Jake gave in the interview. That's the thing I loved about Heath. He would never joke. Someone wanted to make a joke about the story or whatever. He was like, no, this is about love. Like, that's it, man. Like, no. Ahead of his time, Jake Gyllenhaal. It's it's big of Jake Gyllenhaal to admit that he would have gone through with it, yeah. that he wasn't quite educated or informed enough back in the mid-2000s to stand up for this. But for Heath Ledger to be that guy is testament to who he was. Absolutely. And this was the film that transformed both Heath and Jake from kind of notable up-and-comers to Hollywood elites. And as we touched on before as well, this was when the romance between Heath Ledger and his co-star Michelle Williams blossomed. Yeah. So at the time that Brokeback Mountain was released, Michelle Williams was something of a small town actress. She was from Montana. She had made a name for herself on the cult teen TV show Dawson's Creek. Welcome back to Scandal Dawson's Creek. But she'd also been in a number of indie films like The Station Agent, Me Without You. 
It's suffice to say that Brokeback Mountain transformed her career entirely. Yeah, exactly. After Brokeback Mountain, she went on to star opposite Ryan Gosling in Blue Valentine, a great movie, Leo DiCaprio in Shutter Island, and was Marilyn Monroe in My Week with Marilyn. Now, Heath did have a history of dating his co-stars. We know that he dated Naomi Watts after meeting on the set of Ned Kelly, and he first met Michelle Williams on the very first day of shooting of Brokeback Mountain. I love this story so much. Me too. So he told Rolling Stone that one of their first meetings, they were knee deep in snow. He said, and on the fifth take, Michelle and I tobogganing down the hill, we were supposed to fall off having a fun time. Ho, ho, ho. And Michelle was screaming in pain. And I thought she's acting. Ha, ha, ha. She twisted her knee. She was pretty much on crutches for the rest of the shoot. And I felt like I always had to look after her after that. Yeah. Heath and Michelle weren't the only ones that day who noticed the chemistry between them. Even screenwriter Diana Asana has given quotes about this. She said, I remember Heath looking at her and she looking up at him with these wide eyes. She was almost startled by the attention he was giving her, but you could see it every day from then on. For him, it was truly love at first sight. He was so taken with her. That's one of my favourite images, I think, from this entire relationship because I think you hear a few people from the cast talking about when she did really injure herself so early, he came in and swooped in as kind of this person that felt this almost inherent need to protect her Mm. before he even really properly knew her, which was really incredibly beautiful. And the relationship moved very, very fast. They shot Brokeback Mountain in 2004. They then moved to Brooklyn together instead of Manhattan because it's away from the paparazzi. Michelle said as well that she loved Brooklyn because, and I quote, you can see the sky. Yeah, by October 28, 2005, two months before the film's cinematic release and before they became the talk of the industry, they welcomed a baby girl who they named Matilda Rose, whose name was inspired, of course, by the Roald Dahl novel and an ode to Heath's Australian roots. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal was named Matilda's godfather, which is really beautiful, and Michelle's best friend, Busy Phillips, was chosen as godmother. They hadn't actually decided that they were going to have kids. So in that interview that Heath did with Rolling Stone, he said, we just fell very deeply into one another's arms. Our bodies definitely made those decisions decisions for us. I mean, the second you acknowledge it as a possibility, the body just inevitably hits a switch and it happens. God, I hope not. (laughs) They conceived Matilda in Byron Bay, a place that Heath has described as very romantic. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I mean, it's quite beautiful. It also gives insight into just how spiritual and deep and emotional Heath was and probably Michelle Williams was as well it seems like they were kind of kindred spirits yeah absolutely I mean I don't think you're going to connect with someone who's not on that level with you Brokeback Mountain director Ang Lee said that he did take personal responsibility for the relationship he also told Rolling Stone the baby keeps staring at me Michelle said she doesn't usually stare up at people like that I said maybe she remembers I'm the reason she came into existence (laughs) after Brokeback Mountain Heath took a year off acting. He said he would have taken more time if he could, but that for financial reasons, I mean, they'd only just recently bought a house, he had to keep working. 
but he really did live a very normal life with Matilda and with Michelle Williams in that first year. He took up most of the domestic duties and said, my life right now is, I wouldn't say reduced to food, but my duties in life are that I wake up, cook breakfast, clean the dishes, prepare lunch, clean those dishes, go to the market, get fresh produce, cook dinner, clean those dishes, and then sleep if I can. I love it. I actually adore it. He was often photographed with his partner, Michelle, and Matilda walking around the streets of Brooklyn. Clearly, he didn't get away from the paparazzi entirely. But yeah, they seemed like a very happy family in these early days. Yeah. And from all reports, particularly Heath's own quotes on the record, he really adored being a dad. I mean, he once wrote the name Matilda in wet cement out the front of their house, along with an indent of her footprint and the name Hugo, which is the neighbor's dog name. (laughs) My dad actually used to do this too. And you only told me recently that that's like very illegal. Surely that is not legal. Can someone actually clarify? Yeah. this for us that it must be vandalism that, that is publicly defacing <laughs> maybe I shouldn't put this on the record dad used to sometimes like carve our little initials in cement but if you're putting a baby's foot in cement how do you then get the cement off the foot or does it yeah. not grip to well, human skin well we didn't do the feet we did it with a <laughs> stick but I don't know I mean a sweet idea with hindsight anyway <laughs> anyway the markings as far as reports go are still there he's also said that becoming a father forced him to learn more about himself through his child and he had this quote that feels a bit hard to read this many years on. Mm. I think you also look at death differently. It's like a catch-22. I feel good about dying now because I am alive through her. But at the same time, you don't want to die because you want to be around for the rest of her life. Yeah. It was clear that Heath and Michelle adored each other. Heath once called his fiance the perfect mum, adding, I'm so proud. I just fall deeper and deeper in love with both of my girls. He even had Michelle Williams' handwriting tattooed on his arm. One day she wrote the song title Old Man River on his arm and he actually took that to a tattoo artist and got the tattoo artist to trace over it to make sure it would never fade. Yeah, that's really lovely. And speaking to Vanity Fair in 2018 about their relationship and Michelle Williams hasn't done many interviews about Heath, but she did say that she had spent the last 10 years looking for the kind of radical acceptance that she'd felt from Heath. She added, I always say to Matilda, your dad loved me before anyone thought I was talented or pretty or had nice clothes. Yeah, speaking to GQ in 2012, she also gave a really lovely quote and said, a lot of things happened at once. It's a bit like we had a lot of things to do because we didn't have a lot of time or something. Goes without saying, Zara, it was a beautiful love story, but it was also a short one too. After the break, we'll tackle exactly what happened next. First, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Zara 2021 has not quite turned out exactly how we wanted it to. Not only has it been hard to keep consistent sleeping patterns when things get a little weird, it's also hard to maintain a feeling of calm, isn't it? Yeah, we've all felt a little frazzled, that is for sure. And luckily, apps like Calm exist to make these strange times that little bit more manageable. If you are ever feeling stressed or uncertain, Calm can help navigate change, feel more relaxed and calm your mind, which, let's face it, we could all use some help with from time to time. Calm is the number one app for sleep, meditation and relaxation. You can use it as a mental checkpoint and to lean on for support whenever the world starts to overwhelm you a little bit. Calm provides guided daily meditations, imaginative sleep stories and curated music tracks to help improve focus. And if you're gifted with the kind of mind that gets super, super restless when it's time to sleep, like you or I, Mish, or if you do struggle with procrastination, like a lot of us do as well, Calm is the perfect app to regain your focus. Calm 
has been kind and generous enough to offer us a discount code to share with all of our shameless listeners. Go to calm.com forward slash shameless for 40% off Calm's premium subscription. Yeah, that is calm.com forward slash shameless for 40% off their premium subscription. The premium subscription includes hundreds of hours of programming with new content being added every week. Take care of your mind, sleep more, stress less and live better with Calm. Thank you so much to Calm for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Okay, Mish, so at this point in his life, Heath continued to be pretty selective about the roles that he was playing. After Matilda, Heath Ledger played a heroin addict in the Australian film Candy. He also played Bob Dylan in the film I'm Not There. But then it was April 2007, Mish, and he started work on his biggest blockbuster of his entire life, I would say, where he was playing the Joker in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Yeah, In September 2007, though, cracks started to emerge in Heath's private life. Reports started coming out that Michelle Williams and Heath Ledger had broken up after three years together. They actually initially surfaced in tabloids like Us Weekly. So I'm imagining that at the time, people probably didn't give much weight to the reports, just kind of dismissed them as we do with a lot of stuff that comes out of Us Weekly. It turns out, though, that tabloid was on the money. Yeah, well, I think because the rumours weren't confirmed by Michelle or by Heath, people were kind of waiting for their statement on that. But it turned out it was actually Michelle's estranged dad who confirmed the rumours. He spoke exclusively to the Daily Telegraph. So her dad was actually based in Australia at the time in the midst of facing alleged US tax evasion charges, which just feels like another sort of story in and of itself. (laughs) And he said to the Daily Telegraph, we've known about their troubles for a while, but it's always a very difficult thing in life when these things happen. I know Heath and Michelle still care about each other deeply and are very committed to being great parents to their daughter. I know that these quotes we're about to read out all seem quite sweet and fine, but for an estranged parent, again, to decide something this publicly for their child, probably without their child's permission, he hadn't spoken to Michelle Williams recently when he gave these quotes, is just another example in these scandal episodes of famous kids' parents behaving terribly. Yes, yes. Why? Like, Like, why do this? He went on to say, you can never be stunned by what happens in Hollywood. I learned that when we were dealing with Michelle's career when she was younger. Michelle was grown up at 16, and just like Heath, her life has had an extremely fast pace to it. But they are both very talented artists, and they live with their hearts. I feel tremendously for her and for him and hope they will find what they want in life. I have a great respect for Heath and I know he cares tremendously for Michelle. I was never invited into their world and that's fine, but I care deeply for my daughter and if I can do anything to help her, I will. Help her by shutting the F up, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty telling in those quotes anyway when you've got, I was never invited into their world, but here I am on the record speaking of their relationship. So we knew that the couple had split. And then in November 2007, Heath gave this interview, did this big feature with the New York Times, which is one of the more interesting profiles to go back and read because it was a couple of months before he died. And we will put a link to this one in our show notes because it's definitely worth reading. And It's, again, one of those things that you read and you think, God, there was a bit of a sense of foreboding about this, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And the description of him in the article was a really interesting one as well. New York Times writer Sarah Lyle wrote, 
What you see is a strapping 28-year-old with sleepy eyes, an amused crinkly grin and out-of-control blondish hair. Dressed on this particular occasion in a hooded sweatshirt and ripped jeans hanging low to reveal the waistband of a pair of light blue flannel underpants. What you get is a lot less obvious. A serious but hard-to-pin-down actor disguised as a California stoner. That description to me really stood out. It's quite funny. You and I read this at the same time Mm. and both of us kind of got to this line at the same time and pulled it out to each other and thought a serious but hard to pin down actor disguised as a California stone. I felt pretty bang on Mm. when we'd been doing all of this research. I think the media was kind of desperate to pin him as a heartthrob that was also like this really chilled out Californian stoner, as New York Times said, but he was serious and far kind of more complex than that and that's probably the image that came out in the years since. Among other things that were said in this article, what really stood out to us was that Heath said he wasn't proud of his recent work and that he was finding himself increasingly stressed on set. Yeah, one of the most difficult paragraphs in this article to read is as follows. He tends to do that. He is here in London filming the latest episode of the Batman franchise, The Dark Knight. Mr. Bale, as it happens, plays Batman. Mr. Ledger plays the Joker. It is a physically and mentally draining role. His Joker is a psychopathic, mass-murdering, schizophrenic clown with zero empathy, he said cheerfully. And, as often happens when he throws himself into a part... Heath is not sleeping much. Yeah, he elaborated on his sleep problem by saying, last week I probably slept an average of two hours a night. I couldn't stop thinking, my body was exhausted and my mind was still going. He said one night he took an Ambien, which failed to work. He took a second one and fell into a stupor only to wake up an hour later with his mind still racing. It sounds very much like he just couldn't turn his mind off. Yeah, it sounds very much as well like Sarah Lyle had a very good read on Heath, even in the small amount of time she spent with him. She wrote this. Even as he spoke, Mr. Ledger was hard-pressed to keep still. He got up and poured more coffee. He stepped outside into the courtyard and smoked a cigarette. He shook his hair out from under its hood, put a rubber band around it, took out the rubber band, put on a hat, took off the hat, put the hood back up. He went outside and had another cigarette. Polite and charming, but nonetheless gave off the sense that the last thing he wanted to do was delve deep into himself for public consumption. And a fair call too, if you're not in the best headspace. Like then imagine having to put all of that on the record for everybody in the world to read. He also said he was struggling with time away from his toddler too, explaining that time away from her, and I quote, is kind of like your whole body has a lump in its throat. Yeah, we do know now, Zara, that around this time in November 2007, Heath was casually dating another Australian by the name of Gemma Ward. Yeah, so they had a brief relationship that Gemma also hasn't done a bunch of interviews about Heath as well, but speaking to British Vogue in 2011, she said, I kind of met him at first and said, listen, my mum's living with me right now and I'm kind of going through a hard time and I'm not interested in having a serious relationship with somebody. And he was like, you know, um, let's just be there for each other through these hard times we're both going through. And we developed a relationship and we started seeing each other. This is a quite telling quote to me. I mean, we Mm. don't know 
much at all about the relationship between Gemma Ward or Heath Ledger, nor would I even pretend that we do. But they were both from Perth and she has said on the record that they kind of fell into this very comforting relationship where both of them were going through very, very difficult times. And it almost makes sense that you'd be drawn to someone who's from your hometown. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Gemma Ward's star was rising so much at this time too as a model, a supermodel almost. So you can imagine them finding a safe harbour in each other in this scary new world. So we do know that Heath and Gemma had a casual relationship. And then in January of 2008, Zara, the unthinkable happened. Yeah, so it was just two and a half months later on January 22 that Heath was found dead in what is believed to be his apartment in downtown Manhattan. He was just 28 years old, so a year older than both of us, which just, again, feels quite unthinkable. A New York police spokesman said that his housekeeper had actually gone to let him know that a masseuse had arrived for his massage appointment and she found him dead at 3.26 local time. That was in the afternoon. The spokesperson did say that they were investigating the possibility of an overdose and that there were pills found within the vicinity of the bed. Yeah, we had very, very little information to go off at this time. The media really just had that and a couple of unconfirmed news reports and went absolutely wild with them. This was an absolute media frenzy. Yeah, it was the kind of thing where news broke very, very quickly, so quickly, in fact, that his family hadn't actually been told. Now, in an interview, Heath's dad, Kim, told Nova's Addicted, which is a podcast, and he did this interview in 2018, that he had received a phone call from a business partner asking how his family was doing and that he was quite confused by the call. And then he turned on his TV only to be confronted by footage of his son's body being loaded into the back of an ambulance. He said, we kind of felt like we were the last to know. We literally turned on the television and the first thing I saw was them carting the stretcher out. That's the vision that will always stay with me. I couldn't believe it. This was very much what was happening at this time is that Heath Ledger's body was being carried out into an ambulance and not only were there cameras and paparazzi there, but there were also like prying eyes of fans, strangers who were looking on as if this was some kind of spectacle. Yeah, all while the people who raised him and loved him and knew him most were almost the last to know. He did go on in this interview, Kim Ledger, to say, if only I were there, woken him up or done something. We're in Perth and he's in New York and you think, God, if only I could have been there. You almost feel guilty as a parent that you weren't there to help him out. It's not just Kim Ledger's quotes that we have on this time. Kate Ledger, so Heath's sister, has also said, she said this in the documentary about Heath Ledger's life, that she will always be haunted by the fact that they found out so late. Yeah, watching Kate tell the documentary, that is really hard to kind of hear because it's like, how how does this happen? How does a family find out with the rest of the world? Like that is your precious news to deal with. That's your person. Yeah before everybody else comes in and infiltrates your space. According to Google News and as reported by New York Magazine, there were 24,267 stories about Heath Ledger in the three weeks following his death. That is how much the media descended on this story. And it wasn't even as if they were just descending on the story in a way that just reported what had happened. They descended on every skerrick of rumour that ever emerged about Heath Ledger's life. 
Yeah, from the outset though, one rumour did seem to hold water more than the others. We did touch on earlier the fact that Heath's family felt like they were the last to know that their person had died. What's slightly confusing about the Heath Ledger story though is that reportedly the second person to find out about his death was Mary-Kate Olsen, which is incredibly random. We haven't even mentioned Mary-Kate Olsen yet in this series. Yeah, and to be totally transparent with you all, I think we still feel confused about how Mary-Kate Olsen became involved in this story. And we imagine that many of you probably share that confusion as well. So we will tackle these question marks to the best of our knowledge with what's actually on the record, Yeah, which is not very much we need to say. So according to the New York Times, after Heath Ledger's masseuse grew concerned for his welfare, she dialed the number of Mary-Kate Olsen off of Heath's phone. Apparently, Mary-Kate Olsen was saved in speed dial. I mean, we're talking about 2008, very, very different phones back then. But she called Mary-Kate Olsen before she dialed the emergency number 911. Yeah, so at the time, the paper reported, at 3.17pm, she made a call to the Olsen twin that lasted 49 seconds. At 3.20pm, she made another call lasting 1 minute and 39 seconds. At 3.24pm, another call to Olsen. That one lasted 21 seconds. Then at 3.26pm, the masseuse dialed 911. Yeah, the times continued. Paramedics arrived at 3.33pm and actually went up in the elevator to the apartment with Olsen's security guards. Paramedics did not allow the security guards into the bedroom where Ledger died and they declared him dead at 3.36pm, 19 minutes after the first call to Olsen. So Mary-Kate Olsen wasn't in the state when this happened, but apparently after learning that Heath was either deceased or was in danger, she deployed her security detail who were based in New York to go and see him. Emergency responders on the scene did not let those private security guards into Heath Ledger's room. Yeah, exactly. Investigators concluded that the calls to Mary-Kate Olsen were not foul play and did not concern their investigation. And what has been interesting and also a little bit confusing in the years since is that it has been subsequently reported that Heath and Mary-Kate Olsen had been casually dating in the weeks and months leading up to his death, but they weren't at all serious. Yeah, people have tried to get answers to their questions from Mary-Kate Olsen in the intervening years. She has really denied any opportunity to speak on this. She was interviewed in a cover interview, actually, in Elle magazine just five months later where she shut down the interviewer. She said, I'm not going to comment on it. I won't give you a word about that in the nicest way possible. Let's move on. So that's all we really know for sure. And I think that's one rumour that I think is probably worth us talking about because it is newsworthy, Michelle, Mm. and I think our listeners would have questions about it. And also, I think most importantly, we have the facts to back it up. We Mm. have that New York Times report. But honestly, the bulk of what was reported in the days and weeks after Heath died was pretty grubby. New York Magazine published this incredible piece about three weeks or to a month after Heath Ledger died, criticising the growth online and in-person spectacle that was taking place after he died. They reported that nearly 300 people, as I said before, crowded on the street outside his apartment to watch and film the removal of the body bag. Another 100 people were waiting outside an Upper East Side funeral home at It just feels like leeches were everywhere. I can't think of another word for it. Mm. The first autopsy, Mish, was inconclusive and I think this must have fed this 
confusion narrative in the press where people are like, we don't have answers. Great. Let's create our own. Yeah. Borderline conspiracy theories, right? Where people just went absolutely wild. So the first autopsy report that came back from New York medical examiners was announced the day after Heath's body was found. They then announced because it was inconclusive that another two weeks would be needed for an official cause of death to be determined. Meanwhile, Heath's family were contacting American news websites that were reporting that Heath had committed suicide and they were denying that allegation because that, for some reason... For news publications to report that as fact when we have no facts yet is so egregious. And so unethical. Like just every criticism under the sun. On February 7, so about two weeks after he died, the official report from the New York City Medical Examiner concluded that Heath died from an accidental overdose resulting from, and I quote, the abuse of prescription medications. So the report mentioned drugs including OxyContin. It also mentioned the anti-anxiety medications Valium and Xanax and two different types of sleeping pills. And it felt very much that when the world heard this news, I don't know how to frame it in any other way that people felt like it was an anticlimax, that how could this happen like an accidental overdose? It was so unlucky and unfortunate and almost like pointless. I don't even know if that's the right word to use either, that the rumours didn't stop, I'm pretty sure, because of this. Like the rumours did not stop and people wanted to keep digging stuff up. I don't know if people just wanted to find meaning or if people just wanted to be salacious about it, but it just didn't stop. Yeah, find meaning or find dirt, which is gross again. Meanwhile, the paparazzi who had descended on Michelle Williams and baby Matilda did not let up. This was so intense around the time of Heath's death that one writer called the paparazzi a morbid cult. Michelle Williams released a statement saying, please respect our need to grieve privately. My heart is broken. I am the mother of the most tender-hearted, high-spirited, beautiful little girl who is the spitting image of her father. All that I can cling to is his presence inside her that reveals itself every day. My family and I watch Matilda as she whispers to trees, hugs animals and takes steps two at a time and we know that he is with us still. She will be brought up with the best memories of him. The attention was so pervasive and persistent that Michelle had to leave Brooklyn and move upstate to New York. And I know we spend such a great deal of time both on Shameless and on Scandal talking about the devil that is the paparazzi industry, but to have a grieving mother and a grieving child and them have to move out of their safe place because we didn't make it safe for them just feels so yuck. Yeah. One of Michelle Williams' quotes about this to Vanity Fair in 2018 is powerful. She said to have that kind of attention in such an aggressive way around you and your child when so much of it is coming from what truly is a tragedy for a family. It's a kind of violence. It was unmanageable to be stalked like that. Yeah, another story that she told Vanity Fair just demonstrates the relentlessness with which she was pursued. She said, I will never forget going to the post office and seeing a sign hung on the wall for anyone with information about myself and my daughter to please call this number. So I took that down. I just, like, words kind of fail me. Mm. But I think one nice part of this story that our listeners might like to hear is that In the months after Heath died, his best friend, Trevor DiCarlo, who we've mentioned a lot over the course of these two episodes, who travelled with Heath in the early years of his stardom, 
was photographed on heaps of walks with Michelle Williams and Matilda and eating out and his family on the record saying that he felt a huge responsibility and need to be with Matilda at this time. Yeah, almost that protective instinct that Heath once felt towards Michelle Williams kicked in for Trevor when Heath was gone. Heath Ledger's funeral was held in Australia on the 9th of February and was attended by hundreds, including Michelle Williams, Kate Blanchett, Gemma Ward and, of course, Heath's family. The memorial was held at his sister's high school in Perth. Songs were played, including Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changin' and a video montage was set to the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun. Another video montage featured Matilda and was accompanied by Ben Harper's Happily Ever After In Your Eyes, which the musician had reportedly written expressly for Matilda Ledger. How beautiful is that? Afterwards, the family reportedly attended a small service at Fremantle Cemetery and attended a wake at a restaurant by the ocean. At sunset, about 50 people who attended the wake took a splash in the ocean, which is a very Perth thing to do in February. Mm, After Heath died, a narrative really did start to emerge that was quite intense, one that he had a substance abuse problem and had for some time. So, Stories started to appear in tabloids, often quoting anonymous sources who claimed that they were close to Heath or close to his loved ones. So many of them were not named and yet were reported on as fact. And I think it's really important for us to note as part of this series on Heath Ledger, we will not be giving air to gutter journalism. Like we are not interested in airing bullshit rumours that seem to have no veracity simply because they were published somewhere. Because if this time proved anything, it was that anything said about Heath Ledger was published as fact. And really, looking back, you realise how much of it's just pure bullshit. Well, how close can you be with Heath if you're not willing to put your name on the record, right? Mm. You've got so many people who just will not put names to quotes. And when we put this episode together, we thought, I'm not giving voice to any of these quotes if they won't put their names to it. Mm. I mean, The reason that we do mention some of these rumours, though, is because so many of our listeners are young and we feel very much like their memory of Heath, very much like our memory of Heath, will be totally and subconsciously influenced by how the media framed him after his death. And we kind of want to rewrite that a tiny bit or at the very least present a picture of what the media presented to the world and kind of let you make up your own mind. Yeah. One story that we are willing to retell because someone did put their name to it was actually published in The Sun, which is a UK tabloid. And this was published the day after Heath Ledger's death. It quoted a woman by the name of Rebecca White, who was a former assistant to Naomi Campbell, the very famous model. She claimed, Rebecca White claimed, that she had seen Heath doing recreational party drugs at house parties over the years and claimed that she had some form of knowledge about escalating drug use behaviour. Now, the way that these quotes were framed, and Rebecca White really did do the rounds across so many tabloids around the world, was that Heath has done drugs in his life and therefore was addicted to drugs, which is bizarre because when you read the quotes, so much of it, is relating to partying, like partying behaviour that I'm sorry is pretty consistent with a lot of people in their 20s, particularly a lot of people with money in their 20s. Yeah, well, I think what was interesting about how the media wanted to frame these quotes at the time, I mean, one of the headlines from the Daily Mail was drug-taking Heath Ledger was named bad influence as girlfriend wanted sole custody of daughter. It was a little bit strange to me that the media was clawing at any chance to depict taking something like ecstasy on a night out 
to having an addiction and with these allegations to make an assumption that they must be linked to his death when we know from the medical examiner's report that there was nothing illicit in his system at that time. And it's like, why is this relevant now? Mm. Like I don't quite understand why we were so desperate to kind of dig into his life and claw up dirt when it's just not relevant anymore. Like he isn't here. It wasn't in his system. Can we not just protect his legacy in some way at the very least for his kid and move on? Yeah, and not even give the family 24 hours. Like yeah, for the next morning, after. the next morning to wake up and read about Heath reportedly drinking bottles of champagne sometimes doing coke and taking ecstasy. Like, I'm sorry, but you can walk onto the street and find a young person who has done that in their lifetime. Is it relevant at all, let alone the day after this person has died? New York Magazine wrote that Rebecca White also spoke anonymously to other publications as a member of Ledger's entourage, which we know is just not the case. She wasn't a member of his entourage and that she was almost certainly paid for interviews because she offered to elaborate on the story to New York Magazine for $1,500. New York Magazine is a publication that has some kind of ethical backbone and refused that payment. Yeah, so we know she was making buckets of money off these rumours and it should be noted, of course, all of these stories and so many others were denied by Heath's publicist and that poor publicist in the days after this death, in the hours after this death as well, who would have been incredibly close to Heath as well, who is now having to do a whole lot of work again to kind of protect the reputation of Heath Ledger. Also during this time as well, a video emerged, right? It was a supposedly incriminating video of Heath shot in about January 2006 and it showed him at Hollywood's Chateau Marmont partying with a whole group of people. Yeah, Entertainment Tonight aired multiple clips from that video and promised to share more with their viewers. After some backlash, though, they released a statement saying, out of respect for Heath Ledger's family, Entertainment Tonight has decided not to run the Heath Ledger video being released to the world media today. This, again, like, why? We also know that this footage was reportedly first acquired by Australia's Channel 9. The TV show The Insider reportedly paid $200,000 for it. Like, again, is it ethical? Footage of him partying in a hotel when he literally died a week ago. Yeah, New York Magazine did report that Heath's publicist had to rally some really high-profile stars like Natalie Portman and Sarah Jessica Parker to threaten to boycott the program if they aired the footage. Again, this poor publicist having to call every contact they probably have saying, can you help me right now, threaten to boycott this program if they air this bloody footage. Yeah, like the desperation would be so intense. Looking back at this salacious and gross coverage of Heath Ledger's death, New York Magazine wrote, by the last week in January, it seemed that there had been two Heath Ledgers living in New York. One, a chaste, sober, unkempt choir boy who brought his daughter organic breakfast sausages at the gourmet garage. The other, a womanising, drug-hoovering rake last seen by, yes, a club goer, dancing at the Beatrice Inn in a ski mask with holes cut out at the eyes and mouth and a hood over his head. Yeah, it felt very much like people were trying to push the latter narrative and we know that there was money involved and that there was money to be made mm. from pushing this narrative. Let's turn to what we actually do know, though. 
We do know that Heath was taking sleeping tablets because he did suffer from insomnia. He said that himself in that New York Times piece two and a half months before he died. According to I Am Heath Ledger, the documentary made about his life, Heath either slept between zero or two hours a night for years. He would call people up in the middle of the night. Yeah, we also know that in November, two months before he died, we had those ominous quotes in the New York Times. We knew that he was probably not in the best headspace. We knew that he was feeling pretty run down. So he had recently been in London filming what would be his final film, The Imaginarium of Dr. Panassus. And his co-star, Christopher Plummer, told reporters after Heath died that, and I quote, he did have a terrible lingering bug in London and he couldn't sleep at all. He went on to say that it was the general consensus on the set that Heath was struggling with pneumonia. Yeah, exactly. So we know that he wasn't in the best shape at all of his Mm. life just before he died. And I guess as I touched on before, it feels very much like we have a real issue with celebrities who die in ways that maybe don't live up to their star power in some strange way. There was a quote from New York Magazine from a guy called Todd Haynes who actually directed Heath in I'm Not There. And he kind of reflected on all this speculation and tried to find some meaning from it. And he said, I think people just want some concrete explanation. I think we're grappling for something. What's so hard about this is there's not a real character arc. Arguably, there never is, no matter how long someone lives. But this one was so full of promise and so in bloom that it feels just savage to have it foreshortened so brutally. That's what makes it so intolerable to the public, which makes the search for more clues so intense. Yeah. After the coroner handed down their final report, the family released a statement saying today's results put an end to speculation. While no medications were taken in excess, we learned today the combination of doctor-prescribed drugs proved lethal for our boy. Heath's father, Kim Ledger, has since become a pretty huge advocate for greater prescription monitoring. For a time, he actually dedicated a bunch of his own time, I guess the next decade or so, to a charity called Scriptwise, of which he was the founding patron. And Scriptwise's vision was, I don't think that they're in operation anymore from what I can see online, Mish, but it was to reduce the number of deaths in Australia from prescription medication misuse. Yeah, speaking about the issue in 2017, Kim said, that Heath Ledger was, and I quote, working night shoots for seven days in freezing cold conditions and he had pneumonia. But he was also travelling backwards and forwards from London to the US and seeing doctors on the set or another doctor he was referred to in London to help him relieve the chest pain. The same in the US. In Heath's case, he mixed some of these drugs for a chest infection with sleeping tablets and that is literally what slowed his system down sufficiently enough to put him to sleep forever. Yeah, and I guess that brings us to what lives on today. We know that Heath's performance in The Dark Knight was beyond exceptional. It was regarded as like the work of genius. And after he passed away, he actually won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his work. For a man who consistently struggled with confidence, who had so much imposter syndrome, can you imagine how happy it would have made him to stand up and actually be celebrated in front of all the peers that he was once intimidated by. We're going to play a snippet from his family's acceptance speeches. His dad, his mum and his sister Kate all got up and accepted the award on behalf of Heath. We want to play clips from both Sally and Kate's speeches because they're pretty heartrending. Heath was such a compassionate and generous soul who added so much excitement and inspiration to our lives. 
We have been truly overwhelmed by the honour and respect being bestowed upon him with this award. Tonight we are choosing to celebrate and be happy for what he has achieved. Heath, <clears throat> we both knew what you had created in the Joker was extraordinarily special and had even talked about being here on this very day. We really wish you were, but we proudly accept this award on behalf of your beautiful Matilda. What is so moving about this footage when you watch the acceptance speech from the three members of his family is watching the rest of the industry look on a bit teary, very moved, very emotional. You've got Angelina and Brad sitting there in the audience together. Mm. Angelina looks quite emotional listening to all of this Mm. and it's just like a really interesting sort of snapshot in time about where Hollywood was at. Yeah and to think he had only been in Hollywood for 10 years like we know that he got his first big break at the age of 18. He died at the age of 28. For someone to leave such an indelible mark on an industry in a decade is a testament to how talented he was and if only he could have seen that talent while he was alive. Yeah, as for Michelle Williams, she has, as we said, has continued to go from career height to career height. She has been nominated for three more Oscars. She has been married twice since Heath passed and she is now with her husband, the Broadway director, Thomas Cale, and they actually welcomed their first child together just last year. Yeah, Heath's presence in both Michelle and Matilda's life will always be missed. She told Porter Magazine in 2016, I watched Matilda warm in the sun in her swimsuit, get on her bicycle and smile and wave as she rode off to meet her friends. I went back into the house and sobbed because of this incredibly simple moment, common everyday happiness. I really felt like at that moment, like, wow, we've done it. Not only are we okay, she's happy. Life has brought us to a place that's not just surviving, but thriving. What a beautiful quote that is, but also like devastating in many ways too. And what about Heath? Like, how do we remember him? I think the point of all of this, and I guess the point of us doing these two episodes, is to kind of push this narrative that as much as we can kind of go back and read interviews and watch footage and watch movies, we will never quite know him. And Mm. I think the media has very much in the last sort of decade or so tried to oversell how much they actually understand of him. Like it's totally naive of us to think that because we read some tabloid reports or because we watch documentary, we have a full picture of who he was. He told the New York Times two months before he died, people always feel compelled to sum you up, to presume that they have you and that they can describe you. That's fine. But there are so many stories inside of me and a lot more I want to achieve outside of one flat note. What a guy. What a person. Yeah, and what a story. And he is so much more than his death. And I think that's been one of the great failures of the media in celebrity media in the last sort of 15 years is that we have fixated so much on his death that we forgot how much life was there too. Yeah, and please go watch his movies. Honestly, put on Brokeback Mountain in particular. That is available on Netflix. I think it's a great opportunity after listening to these episodes 
to actually celebrate the incredible actor he was, go and enjoy the art that he put out into the world because that is, among many things, like Matilda and like Michelle Williams, the way that Heath Ledger's spirit lives on. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening to this two-part series on Heath Ledger. If you are a first-time listener to Shameless, welcome. Every week we recap the week that was in pop culture on Thursdays and revisit the past on Mondays. You can find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Yeah, guys, thank you so much to our researcher Justine Landers-Hanley for putting this episode together. We will pop a gallery up of Heath Ledger's best photos and his best moments on our Instagram. So have a scroll through if you're feeling particularly nostalgic after listening. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.